Exodus 14, verses 1 through 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi-Hararoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire, and a cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course 
when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Isn't this a really, really incredible story? God is faithful, and his redemption is sure. I was watching a documentary entitled African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross. And this documentary documented the plight of African Americans, particularly in the 19th century. The first three documentaries talk about this. And there's a a story about a mother who was near the border of Missouri who longed to be free. And so she and her family left Missouri, headed up north. And they fled from their slave masters. And they got just across the border in Missouri to freedom. And a few days later, they hear a knock at the door. And the slave master has come searching for this woman and for her children. And she does something terrible. She takes one of her children and slits their throat to kill them, to say that I would rather them be dead than be slaves again. They take her and her infant back across the river to Missouri, and as a last act of defiance, she takes that infant and throws the infant in the river. Now I tell you that story to tell you that hope deferred can make the heart very, very, very sick. And sometimes when our dreams are deferred, they explode. Sometimes when you spend all your time seeking justice and righteousness, and that justice or righteousness doesn't come right away. Within the first month or the first year or the first decade, it can be very easy to think, does God see? Does God know? Will God redeem? When we look at the sin even deep within our own hearts, the lust or the greed or the pride or the overindulgence, it can be easy to think, when is redemption coming? Does God 
see and know and hear my cry, is his redemption sure? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But this morning's story tells us that God already has the victory. That his redemption is absolutely sure. That there is no doubt that God will get what he desires, which is the redemption of his people. God is not wavering in his commitment to redeem his people. God will not grow tired. He will not grow weary of seeking to rescue people who are weighed down by the tyranny of the world. God will never stop gladly seeking to free you from the sin that keeps you up at night. Even though the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, I am certain that the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Even though 1 Corinthians 4 verse 16 says that our outer self is wasting away, Paul doesn't stop there. He says that our inner self is being renewed day by day. Even though affliction may characterize our social climate, Iran or Sudan or whatever you may will, or your personal climate. Affliction may weigh against your personal climate today. I am certain that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I am certain of that. Our story tells us that. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then you believe that too. I want to pause and pray that God would help the words of this text sink deep into our hearts. So that when we long for his redemption and it doesn't come right away, that we will not give up hope because he has already proven that he is committed to his redemption and to ours. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we need the help of your spirit this morning. We need the wind of your spirit to blow into our hearts to separate truth from error. To help us to see clearly your provision and to help us remember that you are the God who redeems. God, I pray you make that go down deep in all of our hearts this morning. Wherever we are, help us to know that you see us and that you desire to free us to give us one master, and that is you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God has demonstrated his victory. We see that remarkably in this story, and we see that in a number of different ways. First, in this story, we see that God has demonstrated victory over your oppressor's tyrannical intentions. At the beginning of this text, we find the people of Israel encamped. 
We see in verse 2, God telling Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, we don't know exactly where they are. Scholars have debated exactly where outside of Egypt or on the border of Egypt they are. We don't know exactly where near the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds they are. But what we do know is what we see in verse 3. The wilderness has shut them in. This is not a strategic place for the people of Israel to be. In fact, there are many places that would be the more strategic. On a mountain, perhaps. Not surrounded by a desert and a sea. But God leads them to go camp in front of Pihahiroth next to the sea. This wouldn't make any sense for any kind of military mind. But we're not dealing with a military mind. We're dealing with the mind of God. What we see is that Pharaoh is a military mind. And as the people are camped out, we see Pharaoh trying to reestablish his oppressive tyranny over the people. Look with me at verse 5. It says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? You see, when Pharaoh realizes that two million people have just walked out of his country, he realizes that we just lost a whole lot of people who were doing a lot of work for us. Now, if you work at Devon and you downsize by, say, two million people, the company won't survive. And Pharaoh gets this. And so he gets power hungry and tries to reestablish his tyranny. He makes ready, verse 6, his chariot and takes his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Now, if you are walking out of Egypt with the gold of Egypt, as the people of Israel are doing, and you come and camp next to the sea and look back and you see Egypt with all of their chariots. Now, Egypt is the most powerful superpower in the world. And they're coming with all of their chariots. This is not like one or two chariots. This is not like 20 or half a dozen chariots. This is all of the chariots of Egypt that are coming after this people. Now, if you are the people, you might become a little bit afraid. As we're going to see in just a little bit. But if you are Moses and you've been talking to God, then you see that this is a demonstration of God's victory over the oppressive tyranny of Egypt. Why? Because God said this was going to happen. Look in verse 4. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Here in this verse, we see God's motive for hardening Pharaoh's heart and his motive for sending Egypt against his people. And that motive is that he wants Egypt to know that he is the Lord. He has a motive. He has a purpose for the pursuit of the Egyptians. Now, this is not unlike what we read in the New, in the New Testament. You see, when we face trials or struggles or suffering in this life, what we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, 
is that God says he causes all things to work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That means that if today you are facing the tyranny of sin, God has purposes even in the struggle. That means that if you are facing the tyranny of some oppressive power, whatever it may be, infrastructure in the community or some other societal difficulty, God has a purpose in your struggle. What God demonstrates in these first few verses is that he is omniscient. And there is no military wisdom or any other earthly wisdom that can overcome God's sovereign wisdom. Even in Pharaoh's military planning, he doesn't realize that God has been planning before he has and that his plans are submitted to the authority of God. God is demonstrating in these first few verses his accomplished victory over your oppressor's tyrannical intentions. And we see this most clearly demonstrated on the cross of Jesus. Remember what happened during Passion Week? How the very people who had been shouting Hosanna begin to shout crucify him before the incarnate son of God. You remember how those Roman soldiers took those pieces of wood and beat Jesus over the head and took those thorns and wove them together and placed them on Christ's head. And we may say the evil intentions of the world are too difficult to overcome. If I were in Jesus' place, I would be mad if I didn't think I am powerless in this situation. There's nothing I can do to overcome this difficulty. But the Son of God is not like me. He's not as frail as I am. He's not as tender as I am. He's not as easily swayed as I am. Because with the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, but of holy birth, knew was that in the enemy's intention is our salvation. So we can read in Hebrews 12 that Jesus endured suffering, scorning the shame. Why? Because he took joy in the hope that was coming in resurrection. And we have the same joy and the same hope today. Regardless of what you're facing, we can know that God has demonstrated victory over all of our oppressors' tyrannical intentions. But not only is that the victory that God demonstrated, God has demonstrated victory over the fears of his people. Look with me in verse 10. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They didn't cry out long. Look at that. Verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Or in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The people of Israel are terrified. And that brings up a really important point. And that is that miracles don't automatically take away our faith. Excuse me. Take away our fear. Give us faith. 
When Jesus was walking the earth, so often people would ask him for a sign, and his response was often the same. No sign will be given to you except for the sign of, of Jonah, which is the Son of Man is going to be crucified and lay for three days in a tomb and is going to rise again. What happened was the miracle didn't convince people. In fact, remember that beautiful story of Jesus feeding the 5,000? After that, they come back to him looking for a sign. Jesus said, you didn't come for because you believe in me. You came because you, you got fed. You want more food. You want to see more miracles. Miracles don't automatically produce faith. And we see that happening here. Though Israel has watched as the Nile River has turned to blood, though Israel has watched as Moses hit the dirt and gnats came out of the dirt, though Moses watched as the, or Israel watched as the east wind brought locusts that ate up all the Egyptians' crops, Though Israel watched as all the firstborn of Egypt were killed because they didn't have their houses covered with the Passover lamb. Though they've seen God do miracles, yet they fear. Now, is this fear unqualified? Well, if you know God, fear is unqualified. And in this text, we see that again. One in verse 10, we see the people of Israel lifting up their eyes. They lift up their eyes, and what do they see? They see Egypt coming after them. Now, if they would lift up their eyes just a little bit more, they would see a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that has been guiding them through the wilderness. But their eyes are too low. And so they're afraid. You have the same thing that happens with us? Colossians 3 tells us, If then you have been raised with Christ, Christian, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, what happens is when we get like Peter and we start looking at the waves and looking around at what's happening on earth, what we can we can do is get afraid. You've been afraid of what's coming next. You've been afraid of bad news. Well, what Psalm 112 tells us is that if we fear God alone, we don't have to even be afraid of bad news. We don't have to be afraid of anything coming against us. We don't have to be afraid of not having success. We don't have to be afraid of, of money overcoming us. We don't have to be afraid of the tyranny of sin because God has overcome. And if we trust in him, we got nothing to fear. So is this fear unqualified? Yes, because their eyes are not lifted up quite far enough. Are their fears unqualified? Yes. Because they see the Egyptians marching after them. What I appreciate about the author of this text is that, which, which uh, theologians have said this, this could possibly be Moses or the traditions it's, it's uh, putting words to this. When you look back in, in verse 19 of this text, we read these words. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. See, what, what Israel is forgetting is what God is calling them. God doesn't call them just a people. He doesn't call them just a company. He doesn't call them just released and redeemed slaves. God calls them a host. Maybe you don't get that. The word host, when you read that, say, in the New American Standard Version or even in the English Standard Version right here, the word host is another word for the word army. And you can see it right there in verse 20. Coming between the host of Egypt, the army of Egypt, and the 
host of Israel. Which means that this author is calling Israel a host. They're an army. You feeling this? I don't see, I don't see a reaction. God's people are an army. God's people are armed. God's people have might. Now you may be thinking, I don't see it, Chance. I don't see it in the text. I don't see where you're getting this from. Because what I see is a people who are unarmed, a people who are terrified, a people who are trapped between the wilderness and the sea. But what they don't see, maybe what we have trouble seeing sometimes, is that we have the Lord on our side. And if you read in the New Living Translation, we talked about this, what do they call the Lord? The God of heaven's armies. Lift up your eyes, Gideon, because what you don't see, you might see the army of your enemy, but what you don't see is an angelic host that are surrounding you that are doing battle for you. You may not, what you may see, Moses, while you lift your hands up on the mountain, is an army that could very easily wipe out all your people. What you don't see is that God is fighting your battle for you. What you may not see, Christian, on that late night when you're struggling with that sin or that temptation, what you may forget when you walk into that neighborhood or that apartment complex and it seems like there's ignorance or irreceptiveness to the gospel of Jesus is that you have a host with you because God is the Lord of heaven's armies. His people always come armed because they always come with him. Is this fear unqualified? Yes. Because people don't realize that they are an army to themselves. Is there fear unqualified? Yes. Look at verse 11. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? And we may not get this joke, but three-fourths of Egypt was dedicated to cemeteries, graves. We can look there even now and see pyramids that are, are monuments, that are tombs. Most of Egypt was a tomb. And they're saying, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that we've taken us up to the way to die in the wilderness? The evident question is, no, there are plenty of graves in Egypt. But what the people are forgetting is that Moses carries with him, like we looked at last week, the bones of Joseph. The bones of Joseph. We saw this last week in chapter 13, verse 19, that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. See, what Joseph knew is that God had promised that you're not going to be buried in Egypt. You're going to be buried in the promised land. In other words, your death is not going to happen underneath your oppressor. He said, I am freeing you to be buried in the midst of my promise, in the land that is flowing with provision and plenty, in the land that is has sheep and, and cows and goats that is flowing with milk and vines and, and figs that are going to put honey everywhere. There's, there's just plenty is where you're going. And that's where I'm going to have your bones buried. Christians, it's the same thing for us. Because Jesus died and rose again, we do not have to fail to our oppressor. We do not have to submit to a realm of tyranny. Because what Jesus promises is that when you die... That is not the end of you. 
that when you die, you die to life everlasting. So we are freed to engage in... I can't even get my words out. Radical, incredible, unbelievable, untamable acts of love and kindness and sacrifice. Why? Because we have nothing to lose. Because when we die, we are buried in the promised land. We're not buried in Egypt. We're buried with plenty. Now, the people are afraid and their fear is unqualified, but I want you to notice how God deals with their fear. (laughs) He deals with their fear with gospel. I want to read what one New Testament scholar says about this text. He says, this is the first of many murmurings, as they have come to be called, which Israel often voices in the wilderness. Yet the desire to stay in Egypt and now the urgent pleas to return there are typical for people who have gone through an extensive period of oppression. This dispirited and just released from slavery people does not need a word of condemnation from either commentators or Moses. Moses understands this and brings a word of pure gospel to them. As in the lament Psalms, Moses speaks an oracle of salvation to a hurting people, making clear the divine plan in all of this. The use of the lament at this point stresses that Israel does not have the resources for its own deliverance. It must depend on God alone. What we see in this text is these people who are afraid because they've been enslaved. And God doesn't deal with them with condemnation. He deals with them with gospel grace. Look at what he says in verse 13 through Moses. He says, fear not. Don't be afraid. You may see the army, but my word tells you, don't be afraid. You got nothing to fear. Don't succumb to the fear of slavery because I have freed you. You slaughtered that lamb and that lamb was on your household and every year at the very, 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 very beginning of the year, you're going to remember that I am the God who frees you. Don't be afraid. What we see in Jesus is that his love has no fear. If we are afraid, it's a fear of punishment, but Jesus already took that. If we're afraid, we're, that's, that's relying on, on something that's already been paid, but God says that he has, he has freed us. Therefore, fear not. He says, stand firm. Stand firm. You may be on the sands of the shore. They may feel like they're eroding, but I say to you, stand firm. What are they standing on? The only thing we ever stand on. The word of God. The promise of God. He has promised he's going to get glory for himself. Egypt will know that he is the only Lord. And so he says to them, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. Not the salvation of Moses. Not the salvation of your military might. 
See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And I love what he says in verse 14. He says at the very end of that, that verse is be silent. Be silent. Stop complaining. Stop murmuring. Stop fretting. But be still and know that I am God. Be silent. I will demonstrate my victory. This is a gospel word for us today, isn't it? We can get caught up in the rat race of trying to accomplish our own salvation. Trying to prove in an argument that I'm more righteous than I really am. When God says, hey, stop striving. Stop trying to prove that you're something that you're not. I know who you are. You are fully exposed before me. And I love you. And I'm going to accomplish your salvation. Whatever you're going through. God has demonstrated victory over the people's fear through his gospel of grace. But not only has God demonstrated victory over the intentions of tyranny. Not only has God demonstrated victory over the fear of his people. But God is demonstrating victory over the darkness of his people's understanding. Over the darkness. Look with me in verse 19. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. Now that would be a scary thing. If the pillar of fire that has been guiding you, the cloud that has gone from heaven to earth, that was leading you through the wilderness, now up and moves behind you. You ever felt like that? You've been following God, you look up and you don't see God anywhere. You, you prayed your way to this point and you look up in the middle of your obedience and you, and stuff just seems to go wrong and people turn against you and life seems to turn against you. I know some of you are walking through that right now. God went behind me, but why did he go behind him? The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. It was for their protection. And there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming to the other all night. Now, other translations of this say there was darkness on one side of this cloud. There was light on the other side. The cloud on one side to obscure the people from the, the host of Egypt, and light on the other side to light up what was being seen. Now, what is being seen? My next point, which is that God demonstrates victory over creation. Because what begins to happen when God calls Moses to lift up his staff is the wind starts to blow. The wind starts to blow. The wind starts to blow. That ever happened to you? We celebrated a few weeks ago Pentecost. When God's people were in a, an upper room and they were praying and they were afraid. And then all of a sudden they begin to hear the wind. God's presence coming with them. Look at verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Now, I I just... We serve a God who has complete authority over all creation. Now, we, that's important to know in Oklahoma, right? Because we see a lot of wind. And we know 
some of us have known more, probably better than some people, that we serve the God who can speak and the wind will die down. Right? Speak and the wind will just die down. When Jesus, you feel like Jesus is asleep on the cushion, he gets up and says, be still and everything goes away. When you're in the middle of a storm, Jesus comes walking out over the water and then he gets in the boat and the storm is calmed. It's important to know. But in this case, whereas he could, I'm sure, just with a, with a snap and, and everything in, in, in the, everything changes. He does something specific here. Here's the wind starts to blow. And how long does it blow? All night long. All night long. So the presence of God is behind them, lighting up their way. And two million people stand on the coastline, and all they see is the wind blow, and they watch this develop. They watch the waves come. This can't be good. It's getting rocky out there. And then they see a a valley in the middle of the waves. That shouldn't happen. And the wind continues to blow. And they see the east wind come and, and it begins to pile up water on this side of the sea. You ever seen this happen? This has never happened before. And all night long they get to watch the finger of the Lord split the sea in two. Now, if God just snapped his finger and split the sea, I would be afraid to walk out. But if you watch the wind, if you, if you watch this development and you watch what God's doing, I think what God's doing is he's building faith in his people. All night long. Until the morning. God here demonstrates victory through and over all of creation to display to his people morning is coming. And when morning comes, the darkness is dissipated. When morning comes, you've got nothing to fear. When morning comes, resurrection happens. And why do I say resurrection happens? Because if we go back to verse 21, what we see is that the waters were divided. There was another time when the waters were divided. Remember Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and it was void. And darkness covered the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God spoke and light and God spoke and the waters were divided and between these waters was creation plants and vegetation and birds and fish and cattle and you and me between the waters came creation 
And here we see the waters are divided and the people of Israel go into the midst of the sea. But they don't go in the midst of the sea and they don't find chaos there. When they go into the midst of the sea, what they find is dry ground, a straight way, a path through the midst of the waters. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand, on their left. And the Egyptians pursue and went after them into the midst of the sea. All of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the force into a panic. See, the people go through on dry land. And when they come out, they've got new creation. New creation. When they, on one side, they had oppressive forces of evil. On this side, the forces of evil have been conquered. On the previous side, they had fear because they don't know what to expect. On this side, they have the provision of God that overcomes their fear. On this side, they see hatred winning and evil oppressing. On this side, they see new life and new joy and new hope from God's redemption. On this side, we see cross And on this side, we see resurrection. See, for the Christian, what this story tells us is of the redemption of God's people, which is only accomplished through the mighty work of God, through the waters. God demonstrates here his power over every worldly evil and every worldly authority He demonstrates to you and to me that he is not only able to overcome them, but to free us to new life and new redemption. And he's even willing to use creation to do it. He clogs the chariot wheels so that they are afraid of him. Let us free from from before Israel. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. What God has promised to us is that the morning is coming. Regardless of what you're facing, regardless of what you're dealing with, regardless of what happened yesterday or last week or this month, God has promised to you that his victory is sure, that he is very much able to not only move out the waters for you, but to overcome every evil that comes against you. And we see that most fully in Jesus' resurrection. Now, how do the people respond to this? Verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. See, God used his great power to bring about belief and faith in his provision. And he calls for the same thing from us today. God does not desire that we would be overcome with insecurity or with fear. What God desires is that we would trust him. Trust that just as he miraculously provided for the people of Israel, that he will and has promised 
to miraculously provide for us and already has in the death of his son and his resurrection. We have only to be silent and to wait for his provision, trusting him. Now that's not a silence that is without obedience. The people had to walk through on dry ground, but God's victory is secure. The story I told earlier of the mother who, whose hope was deferred is so often the kind of emotion that some of you who give your lives for the good of other people might face. You might be tempted to let hope ride for a little bit, to let faith dissipate. What this story teaches us today is that God is so able to not only overcome your fear with his power, but to be gracious to you in the midst. As we go to the Lord's table today, I want us to remember that Jesus has paid it all. That this story was a story of redemption, but it wasn't an ultimate redemption. People are going to continue to murmur and they're going to come to the promised land. It's not going to be everything they look forward to. But what Jesus promised to us is that his redemption is always sure. His redemption in creation is working, his redemption as, as redeemer of his people. And we have no reason not to hope. I love what one New Testament commentator says about this passage. He says this, it is fully clear that Israel was not saved because of her faith. Rather, Israel failed to believe right up to the moment before her deliverance. Maybe you're coming today and it's hard for you to believe that God's going to redeem. The faith of Israel did not provide the grounds of her salvation in any sense. Yet a faithful response was called forth. How? By God's own victory. Today we can hope in him because his victory is sure. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, this morning we, I'm just astounded by your provision and by the way you overcome evil. And I long with my brothers and sisters for the full redemption of all of creation. When you come, Jesus, and make everything new. In the meantime, help us to live with steadfast love and hope in your justice and your righteousness. As we look back on our own personal lives and in the history of those in our genealogy of faith who've gone before us, help us to remember that your redemption is sure and your victory is secure. God, the places where we need to repent from fear or thank you for the invitation to trust you. The places where you're calling us to give our lives for something that's much bigger than ourselves. God, help us to obey knowing that you're going to provide. Thank you, God, for this picture of your redemption and your victory. Help us to walk in it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.